So tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 2 together, um, and what we're going to see as we do this in the first few verses of chapter 2 is that um, Christians are people who are called to obey the command to love. So I'm going to read this for us. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 14. It's printed on the back of your bulletins. You can follow along there if you like. Um, this is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and it is given to us in love. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is made complete. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so central to this passage is this word commandment. And we all know what a command is, right? It's somebody telling us to do something. And when we hear, hear the word command or commandment, um, just the idea that we are obligated to obey or that we are, we are constrained by something outside of us, our ears turn off, right? Like that just shuts down our ears, not interested in that. Um, like we, we just buck at the idea of obedience, we think of dogs. Um, I think of children, unruly children. Maybe disobedience is what I think of with small children. But like this, the whole concept of obedience is something that we buck at. We don't, we're not interested in it. And I think one of the reasons for this is that um, culturally, obedience has been cast as a foil to freedom. Right? Obedience is seen for us culturally as the opposite of freedom. And freedom for us as Americans is everything. Right? It is... Um, it's everything to us. It's, we, it's, we're taught that it's intrinsically connected to our happiness. Right? Think about last time you were at a sporting event and the stadium was full. And you heard the national anthem sung. And when we sing the land of the free, like they hold the note. And everyone starts cheering. Yes, freedom. And then home of the brave. No one really remembers that part. Like, yeah, we're brave too. But the freedom, right? That's the part that people grab hold of. That is, that's what it means to be an American. And the way that we do freedom as Americans has been, to- has been coined by a sociologist named Robert Bella. Um, he's coined it as, ex- as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. By individual, Bella believes that freedom is what we value. The freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, with whomever you want, without someone coercing you or opposing your choices. Right? Um, Something that we see often in our house is, or hear often, is Mary Landon singing songs from Frozen, or long wanting to hear songs from Frozen. You know, if you've seen the movie, Elsa has this song. 
No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Like the mantra of four-year-old girls everywhere. And um, individualism means that we bristle against commands. We bristle against rules. We, we bristle against the idea of obedience. And our highest value is autonomy. Right? This idea that I can do it. Like I, I can do it. I should do it. It is ultimately up to me. So that's individualism. And expressive, what Bella means by expressive, is he says that we deeply prize expressing our individuality. Like if you feel something, you should go do it. If you think something, you should say it. If you believe something, you should express it. Right? And like social media, at least the way that we use it, it requires a culture of expressive individualism as much as it creates this culture. Right? We, we post our photos on Instagram. We, um, you post yourselves on Snapchat. People post quotes. I think some people use Twitter. People use Twitter to post quotes. Your parents blog their lives on Facebook. Um, some of you write blogs. Like, right? we, we have this, this medium for us to, to express ourselves um, as individuals. And it is the social media is this, the self-expression storefront. Right? It's, it's this, um, the way that it's designed, it's, it tells us, follow me, like me, love me, embrace me, accept me. Um, and so because of this, our cultural mantra has become follow your heart. Follow your heart. I mean, look at our, our movies are filled with this. A couple weeks ago, as a family, we watched Ratatouille, which is one of our favorite movies as a family. And it is, it is just the narrative of expressive individualism, right? You've got a rat who wants to become a chef. Like, that doesn't happen. But if you, what the movie tells us is that the moral of the story is if you are a rat who was born in, in Paris, or outside of Paris in the mid-20th century, and you can read and you have a chef's palate, then you can become the best chef in the world, right? There's this sort of like, if you want to do it, you can, like there's some goodness in this, but this, right, this is the narrative of our time. This is expressive individualism, right? It tells us if, you, if feeling it will make you happy, feel it. If saying it will make you happy, say it. If doing it will make you happy, do it, right? This is our culture's definition of freedom. The ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. But there's a problem with this definition of freedom, with this version of freedom. And one of the things that's wrong with it is that it's actually practically unworkable. Because if this is how you define freedom, and because freedom is connected to happiness, this is how you think that happiness will come to you, um, what happens when two things you want conflict with each other? Right? If you're ultimately free to do whatever you want, what happens when two things that you want conflict with each other? Um, imagine with me for a minute a college student who likes to party and wants a good job after college. I know this is hard to imagine at Wake Forest, but imagine this person exists somewhere out there, and at some point in his college career, he is going to have to make, have to make a choice, right? He's going to either have to stop studying and not worry about a job after college, or he's going to have to stop partying so that he can work hard enough to get the job that he wants after college, right? See, see freedom is not what our culture tells us. Because real freedom comes through strategic loss. Strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain other freedoms. Right? Freedom is not the abs- absence of constraints, but it's choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. I'll say that again. Freedom is not the absence of constraints, but it's choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. Like If you want a degree, you will have to study. Showing up at the library requires not partying seven days a week, right? These are willing to constrain yourself for something you want. So expressive individualism in its, like, idyllic 
idyllic form is unworkable because you will always have competing freedoms. And you must always choose the right constraints and be willing to lose the right freedoms. And the reason why individual express, expressive individualism is so attractive to us is because it's the way it's packaged to us as we're told that's how we get happiness. Like, that's where our happiness is found. And that's a lie. Like, not only is it unworkable, but it will leave you empty and it will actually fracture your relationships. So why do I start with this? Well, what we'll see tonight in this passage is that God offers us something much better. Like he, it, and it comes to us as a command, which is a constraint. And the only way that you'll be able to see that a command could be good for you is if you first see how this narrative of freedom, of expressive individualism, is ultimately untenable. So what First John is saying here is that the happiness that we want actually comes through the love of God. And through our obedience to God's command, his love, this is what it says in verse 5, his love will be made complete in us. So outline for tonight, um, what is the command, how do we obey the command, and why? Why is this the command? So first, what is the command? Um, well, as I was reading verses 7 through 10, you might have felt this. It sort of feels like he's stumbling forward. There's this cyclical repetition. It's an old command. It's a new command. It's not an old command, which is a new commandment, which is true in God and you. Um, and then in verse 10, he, he lasers in on what he's talking about. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. The command is to love your brother. To love, as he's written to the church, he's writing to the church here, the love is to, command is to love your siblings in Christ. And there are other places in the Bible where um, Christians are called to love those outside the faith, but here, John is specifically writing to Christians and telling them to love one another. So what is love? Um, I've got a, a definition on the front of your bulletin, if you want to look on there. Um, one from... Uh, a pastor and theologian named J.I. Packer, and he says this. He says, love is both the desire and the effort to make another person great. Love is both the desire and the effort to make another person great. And great meaning it's the desire and effort to make the other person everything that God intends for him or her to be. And then John connects his discourse on love to darkness and light. So there's this interesting thing that that John is doing here. John's responding to people who claim to be Christians, but live in a way that denies the love of God in Christ. And in a similar way, John is using this imagery of darkness and light to show us while, that while people may wear the title of Christian, the way that we live our lives will ultimately reveal what we actually believe. And, and he does this by showing us a stark contrast. I mean, look at verses 10 and 11. Um, he says, either you love your brother and you walk in the light, or you hate your brother and you walk in the darkness. He gives us two options. Now, hate is a word that no one wants to be associated with, right? I mean, maybe, like, I hate Duke. Like, that's okay around here, right? But for the most part, hate is a word that we don't want to be associated with. Um, I mean, who would ever fess up to hating other Christians? I mean, hating other people in this room. And the interesting thing that sin does to us is that walking in the darkness... Um, this, line, this, this phrase that John uses, walking in the darkness, means that we are blind to our intentions and our actions. Like, think about this. We always downplay how bad things actually are in our own hearts. This is what he's saying in verse 11. And if love is, in fact, the desire and effort to make another person great, then following John's logic, we should define hate as the opposite of this. 
Um, hate, then, a definition we can use is the desire and effort to use another person to make yourself great. And however you define that greatness. Right? Rather than seeking their good and desiring their good, um, hate, we can say, is desiring and using another person for your own gain. So how do we do this? How does hatred manifest itself? Um, three of the ways that I think we see hatred manifesting itself. First uh, is in jealousy. Hating your brother or your sister's blessings. Right? Repressing joy for that person. Scrolling through Instagram and seeing that person happy and not wanting to see their joy. Right? If the calling of the church is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, jealousy manifests itself in our weeping over other people's joy and our rejoicing over other people's sadness. And this is hatred. Um, another way we see it, we see it in jealousy, we also see it in gossip. When you open your mouth to speak about another person, is your desire and effort aimed at making that person great? Or is it aimed at using them for your own greatness? Right? Maybe you don't explicitly talk about other people behind their back, but maybe you don't mind ending up in a conversation where people are being talked about. Another way of asking this do other people exist just so you have social currency? Or do you actually care about their well-being? So jealousy and gossip. The third way to see this at work is esteeming yourself over others. Thinking that you're better than other people. And this is revealed in the way that we ignore other people's humanity because of their privilege or because of their lack of privilege. Right? We, we dismiss other people because of their perceived economic status. So you say things like, like, I don't hate her. I just feel bad for her because she can't afford X, Y, or Z. Or you dismiss those who appear rich because the rich life just must be so easy. Like I've heard you say this. I don't want another rich person to tell me how hard it is to be rich. Now do you hear this? This is not the language of love. This is not the posture of love. Love does not interpret difference as being better or worse. That's what hate does. And it's the darkness in our hearts that leads to this, the way that we use others to elevate ourselves. And John is saying that the darkness blinds us, and it causes us to walk in the darkness. And the Bible calls this darkness sin. And when you're in sin, it blinds you. Like, it engulfs and entraps you. It, it's morally and spiritually debilitating. Um, it's kind of like if you're running and you've got a headwind, and you're running into the wind, you don't realize how fierce that wind is until... The wind changes and the wind's actually at your back. Right? It, it, it blind, like, sin blinds us. He says that it, we walk in darkness and it blinds us. So what do we do with this? Well, we excuse our sin. We don't see how harmful it is to ourselves and to others. We don't see how repulsive it is um, because we're blind to its effects. Like, it, it numbs us. Darkness blinds us. It twists our love into hate and leads us to use others for our own gain. And how different is this from the goal of God's love? To walk not in darkness, but in love and in light. To walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. So the command here is to love our brothers and to love our sisters in Christ just as Jesus walked. And somehow in doing this, John says that God's love will be made complete in us. There's a promise here that the fullness and joy that you long for, that I long for, is found in and through the love of God running through us into other people. So how do we obey this command? Um, a few years ago, I remember 
Mary Clark brought home some um, ground beef to make meatloaf, and then we forgot about it. And um, then one day she opened the fridge, and she made that face. I mean, you know the face. The face that's like something stinks in our fridge. Um, and this happens to us, right? We, we open the fridge, and we know that something's gone bad. We don't know what it is. Um, come on, this happens to you all. You know this happens, right? There's two options you can do with this, right? Either you shut the fridge and you leave the decaying meat for someone else to deal with, maybe your parents, maybe your roommate, pretend it's not there. Um, or you open the fridge, you let the light come on, and you find the rotten meat and you throw it away. Hopefully it hasn't, like, decomposed the tray under it and has oozed into it. You know when that happens? Oh, it's awful. Um, so um, this is often how we feel about our darkness, Think about this is often how we feel about our darkness. Like we don't want to let the light turn on. It's so bad in there. I can't imagine what's rotting in that container, right? Porch leftovers on day two are delicious. Porch leftovers on day 22, like you just don't want to look, you don't want to deal with it. Um, I lived in New Orleans. I went to, to college in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina hit the fall of my senior year. And um, when I came back down in the spring, uh, part of the work in post-Katrina was to gut houses. And when we gutted houses, we were told um, to take the refrigerators out and to wrap them in duct tape and then to put them on the side of the road. Like you were told not to open the fridge because these fridges have been sitting shut in New Orleans heat for like at least six months. Like we, I went back a year later and they're still pulling fridges out of houses. I mean, so 12 months, 18 months of these fridges being closed. Um, and so you were told, they, the experts said that there was like um, bio sludge. I think that was the technical term for what was inside of the fridges, right? It was disgusting. I don't know where they put them. I don't know where they took them to the landfill, what they did, but it was so disgusting what was inside. So you duct tape the fridge shut and you put it on the street. And I think often that's what it feels like for us with our darkness. Right, the darkness that we feel inside of us, we say things to ourselves like, if I actually told someone, like if anyone knew what was inside of me, they would just throw me out. Right, there's no way that this darkness could be turned into light. And the promise of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, he has done and he can do that very thing. As we read last week in chapter 1, um, it says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like the work that we have to do to experience the cleansing of our darkness is to open that, the door of that fridge. Even if you need to hold your nose while you're doing it, open the door of the fridge and confess your sins to Jesus. And his promise is to forgive and to cleanse you. If you remember our definition of love, both the desire and effort to make another person great, this is what God has done for you in Christ. Jesus has perfectly loved you. In Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, we have the highest expression of sacrificial love that the world has ever seen. And this is why John talks about the command being new. The command is not new at all. It's an old command. The command to love one another is as old as the Old Testament. But what makes it new is that in Christ, it has this luster, this shine, this brilliance, this glory that it is difficult to call it anything but new. It was a love demonstrated to enemies to turn them into friends, to restore broken, hurting people to the glory of their humanity. See, the cross of Christ is the fullest expression of God's love. Because on the cross, Jesus substituted his life for yours. 
He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you deserve. He substituted his life for yours and his death for yours. If the definition of love is the desire and effort to make another person great, Jesus fulfills this completely. Think about his desire and his effort. They're unmatched. Sent by the Father, Father from heaven, conceived by the Spirit in Mary's womb, born into this world for the express purpose of living a perfect life in our place and dying in our stead. And he didn't just do this for his friends. He did this for his enemies. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so then, if this is what love is, how do we obey the command to love one another? Look at verse 6. John says that we're to walk in Jesus' footsteps. Like we were to walk in the same way that he walked. So jealousy. If you belong to Jesus, you meditate on the face of the person you hate until your heart melts and you see the image of God in them. Gossip. If you belong to Jesus, your tongue does not exist for your expressive individualism. It is bound by the love of God. It exists for the love of your neighbor, not for her destruction. Esteeming yourself higher than your neighbor. If you belong to Jesus, you take the low place. Jesus demonstrated his love for his friends by washing their feet. That's the posture that we take. Christians serve one another. We take the low place. Walking in the same way that Jesus walked looks like these things. And it looks like when we sin against each other, we say we're sorry and we ask for forgiveness. And when we're sinned against, we forgive each other. We had a friend who's a pastor who tells a story about his kids that um, they do this thing in their family that when they sin, when their children sin against each other, they have a little liturgy of forgiveness. One child says, I'm sorry. The other child says, I forgive you. And then they hug and they say, peace be with you and also with you. That's what we do in the church. We're, gonna, we're going to do this to each other. The, the gospel frees us and moves us to forgive one another and to be restored to peace with one another. We can open that refrigerator and let the light turn on on our hatred because Jesus promises to forgive you and to cleanse you so that you can walk in the light of his love. That's what he's saying in this odd poem in verses 12 through 14. What John's doing in this section where he's writing of children and fathers and young men is he's encouraging the church. He's calling them into enactment of the scriptures. He is desiring and seeking their good. To the fathers, he says... And the fathers are are people with some measure of maturity in the community. He's reminding them of their role as counselors. That they can be confident that because they know God, who has created all things with wisdom, and will grant them the wisdom they need for the sake of the community. And then he writes to the young men, especially those who struggle with their passions. John's words are that since Christ overcame the evil one, you don't have to give in to your temptations. God has given you the resources to withstand the evil one. And then finally, the children, to those who are young in the faith, he reminds them the thing that we so easily forget. That our sins are forgiven. That you don't have to earn your acceptance with God. And that you can cease your striving. John reminds us not to think that we need to earn our Heavenly Father's love, but that life is lived in response to his love for us. So finally, in closing, why is this the command? Why is brotherly love the command? The one that's elevated above all other commands. Well, I just want to close with two things and say that um, it is the command for our sake and for the sake of our neighbors. So first, for our sake. 
I heard a story about a, a young Christian, a, new, a newer Christian, who was visiting an older Christian in his home. And they met to talk about his dislike of organized religion. And so the, the younger Christian asked, um, asked this older man, is it okay if I just follow Christ on my own without having to be involved in the church? And this old man didn't say anything, but he simply leaned forward. Um, and there's a fire in the room. He leaned forward with the tongs and he pulled a hot coal out of the fire and placed it on the hearth. And they sat in silence as the coal went from bright orange to cold black. The place where love is worked out is in the church. This is for our sake, that we need one another to be filled with the love of God, for it to be made complete in us. And finally, it's, it's for the sake of our neighbors. Um, I've got a friend named Monse who is, uh, she's from Mexico City, and she went to the National Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City, and she's on staff with RUF at the National Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City. There's 325,000 students at the university. Yeah, I know. A little bigger than Wake. Um, and the primary evangelistic ministry of RUF at the university are these English conversation clubs. Um, because everyone at the university wants to learn English. So RUF folks have started these English conversation clubs where they meet to speak to one another in English. And she said that um, when people come to learn English, that's what they do. They come to learn English, but they stay because within the community of RUF, they find a love. They find this self-giving, other-centered love that they have not encountered anywhere else. And she knows that this is what they experienced because this is what she experienced. She became a Christian through RUF at her university. Because when she experienced the self-giving, other-focused love of the group, she experienced the love of the triune God, and she wanted to be near him. So if you are not a Christian and you're here tonight, and, and you find yourself hanging around RUF folks because of the way that they love each other, I want you to know that what you are experiencing is the love of God himself, which can be yours too through faith in Christ. See, the church exists so that the world might experience God himself as he dwells in us by his love. This is what happens when the love of God is made complete in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that... um, Your great plan from start to finish is a plan of love, that you love the world, um, Father, Son, and Spirit. You you created the world out of your great love, that Jesus came to us um, in love to restore us to your love, that the world might see and know your goodness. Um, Lord, we confess the darkness that we walk in um, and our fear of opening the fridge um, and the light turning on. Jesus, we pray that you would give us the courage to trust your promises Um, to trust that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sin. Lord, thank you that you do this because you love us so that you might receive great glory in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you all want to stand.